Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. Let's start with a bit of philosophy. I believe this is from, uh, God, what is it called? Philosophy Tube, the YouTube channel, did an effective altruism video. So I've talked about effective altruism before. It's uh, the idea that, one, you ought to give to charity, but two, that you should do it in a way that considers the most effective impact of your dollar. So generally what that means is that if you were to spend, say, $100, that can help someone in your wealthier U.S. neighborhood a smaller amount versus if you send it overseas, they can get like these pills that cost 30 cents each that cure parasites, potentially saving lives and sending a child back to school, changing the course of their life. So the idea of effective altruism is to ask yourself, if I allocate a certain amount of money to my charitable giving, how ought I do that to have the biggest utilitarian impact? And then, you know, they go through it. So this video uh, goes in and is critical of effective altruism for a number of reasons. I want to go through, I thought, I actually was surprised that I agreed because uh, gotcha. it seems like a pretty buttoned up philosophy. It's like, yeah, try to help and try to help in the best way possible. <laughs> it's like, gotcha. yeah, that's pretty clean. Um, but here's what I think is fair. When you set something up like effective altruism, inevitably what happens is that somebody decides who counts as this. Somebody runs the math, somebody does the analysis. And that means that these handful of organizations, and in fact, the handful of people who pick the organizations get a tremendous amount of power. Because one of the things that is not explicitly stated in effective altruism, but is kind of built into it, is that people want to help without really putting their heart into it. Like they want to, they want to give their money and they want to give it in an intelligent way, but they would like to, and I can relate to this, be told, give to the anti-malaria fund or give to the whatever fund. And that you can get a this class of people, similar to the people who run the ESGs with the stock market, who have total control and are therefore more easily corrupted, you know, and are, are beacons of corruption for how this money ought to be allocated and spent. And so you get this very singular point of influence of if you can get this one person, you can shift all this money versus if people just gave based on their heart or who asked them for money that day, it's not as susceptible to that level of corruption. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I also mentioned ESGs, which I was just thinking of as I watched this, which if you don't know, are the environmental and social corporate governments scores that are given to stocks. And in America, we have these large pension funds. So if you're a police officer or a school teacher or whatever, you uh, have your retirement savings that often will sit for like 40 years in these pension funds and it'll hopefully grow over time with the U.S. economy and when you retire, you have access to that. The people who control this have mandates sometimes by these pension funds to put it into a thing with a high ESG score because, you know, they go to the teachers or whatever and they say, do you want to do something that's socially responsible? And they say, yes, of course we do. Yeah. So then you wind up with the people who are labeling these having a tremendous amount of power. And this is the same thing that happened in the 2008 financial crisis with like the Moody's and the people who were rating the creditworthiness of the various tranches of securities. Uh, you get that one person to call a C-level risk, you know, a AAA stock or, or not AAA stock, a AAA um, rated security. And you can cause an entire financial crisis because nobody's doing diligence beyond that because yeah. there's so much trust put into this one person. Yeah. So I thought that, that was really interesting. And I... Um, I've been giving um, often to Charity Water. They're not one that has been explicitly recommended by effective altruism. Uh, but, I, but I don't think that that attacked the core of effective altruism, which is, yeah, but you should still be mathematical in your approach to how you give to charity. Maybe don't trust these people, but do your own research and effective altruism is still a safe philosophy. So the YouTube video was saying that effective altruism actually isn't as effective and altruistic as... <laughs> am I getting it? I think what it does is it... it, it didn't come extremely hard. It raised a lot of these questions. Okay. And these are the ones, this is actually more my reaction to it more than the video. The video talked about how like, can you be a banker in this society and make a bunch of money, send 15% back and call yourself a moral agent if, the, if you're supporting this system of uh, capitalism? Like to me, that is actually not the critique that I found most compelling myself, but I, this is what I took. From the gotcha. Video. Yeah, and it's helpful to know what they said and then what your critique is personally. Yes. So they said you can't be effectively altruistic if you're going to be a banker in a first world society. 
The argument was that if the system needs change, that being effectively altruistic at Davos or as a very rich investment banker, um, she went to apparently a speech that they were doing uh, for bankers and uh, claims that she said, you should all just quit your jobs. (laughs) She was invited to speak at this thing and it was just like, you should just quit. (laughs) There's no way. There's no point of you guys donating. There's no point in asking yourself the moral question past this point of participation in the system. Um, And I don't know the detail that she went into regarding that. Uh, I think that's an interesting perspective, but I don't know that I'm quite as revolutionary as, as that. So what I took from it was that first piece. But the, the other thing that I took from it, which is, was not said in this, but this is my own, is that I've been wrestling and I think talked before with the idea that moral rules exist for people primarily as a crutch for their own disconnection. So like, I don't need a rule that tells me not to eat my own dog. Mm-hmm. I love him. It's not going to happen. I do need a moral rule to tell me not to eat a cow that I don't know because I am disconnected from that cow. Um, And honestly, were I closely connected, it would be easy for me. But because of globalization and my ability to get other people to do things and not look at where um, the stuff that impacts my life comes from, I can stay disconnected from those things. So we implement, you know, and and I think that that um, exists even in your own life. So people, most or many people, don't need rules to not abuse themselves except when they feel so disconnected from themselves that they resort to cutting and self-harm or self-destructive behaviors because they're disconnected. And then they need like some sort of moral injunction to like get up in the morning, stand up straight, not because you feel connected to yourself, because you like this is the rule for how you're going to function in life to get past the fact of your own disconnection. And I've been trying in my life where I did, I used to focus tremendously on morality, what is right, how do I align with that? Because I am disconnected from the. But behaviors. even with like a philosophy that was what the golden rule of doing things. Well, I guess what I would say is that like your morality was based on what. My back in the day, yeah. A belief that there was a right way of doing things that I did not have access to, that I had to align myself with, because you could be a bad person with very little effort. In fact, you were likely to drift into badness and harm and carelessness and selfishness unless you put a tremendous amount of effort and aligned by all of these rules of how you ought to behave in order to not fall into that pattern. And I saw that because we watched 12 Years a Slave and I watched all the, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's character in that movie is this good slave master and even Solomon Northrup in that movie says, you know, he's a good man. And the woman next to him says, he's a slave owner. Like, what do you mean? And then I was like, oh shit. (laughs) You know, it's everyone condemns slave owners. What is the slavery of today? And that was where through, you know, I don't want to get into it again, but that was where I was like, shit, factory farming is the slavery of today. It is the thing that uh, we all participate in. We all call ourselves really good people. And they're going to look back on it in 250 years and say, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. I would never. Um, how horrible are all of these people? We're not buying local, like participating in a global market, which was like, you I'm know. sure there are others that I am sure yeah, that yeah. might, that might be that, but that was the one that stood out to me. Yeah. That every day you're eating. Yes. That, that you have was, a choice and you could do something. And it is a saying that this type of creature in the case of a slave, I don't mean to call him a creature. I'm just, this is the parallel, like doesn't count, is not worthy of moral consideration because in the age of slavery, uh, their brains didn't, had to different, their skulls were different shaped and all the reasons that they had to discount them yeah. as worthy of moral consideration and uh, not deserving of the feeling of connectedness that you would feel. And the, um, the hypocrisy and the inconsistencies that it would occur. Like, you know, they would have their house slave that they really liked and loved, but they would just be brutal to others. And it's like the same thing you see with animals, which is all these people freaking out whenever a dog is like, please, somebody save them. And then while they eat their cheeseburger and it's... Yeah, I hate when the horses get stabbed in the war movies. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) While you eat a cheeseburger. While I eat a cheeseburger. Yes. Um, And I got you off your uh, initial point, which was like, uh, I asked you about your morality back in the day and you were going towards like what you do now after... Um, sort of reconciling with that, of trying to appeal to your morality or something 
I don't know what your initial... Um, well, so th- this was my deeper feeling that I took from the effective altruism, which is effective altruism underlines, triple underlines, that morality is meant to be a game played with your head. It's about rules that you abide by in order to move closer to being a good person um, in ways that you do not need to feel connected to. In fact, the point of effective altruism is to ignore your moral impulse. Your moral impulse might be help the next door neighbor or do this. And it's not, it's not to ignore that, but it's to say at least as important to that is to act without moral feeling or connection towards these other things which need you. And it is to have a whole other dimension of like what is right that is disconnected from what you feel another human. Like it's, I don't feel connected in many times to the money that I donate um, compared to when I help someone that I know in my own life, even though it takes a, much more of my time and effort and I help them less compared to the money that I send to Charity Water. And it like gives you a pat on the back for that and says this is the right way or this is a better way of approaching morality. And I think that an interesting criticism, which I'm not 100% behind, but I think is interesting that I'm feeling more is in the same way, I'm, I'm drawing a lot of parallels here, I feel like the way that I approached confidence and charisma is like this at the very beginning is like, this is how I'm going to copy confidence. I'm going to copy all of the external signs of confidence and try to get from the outside in. Morality is the same way. It's like, okay, I'm going to do all of the behaviors of a connected person who feels like they care about people in Africa or who feels like they care about cows in a, in a hope that the outside in matters or even with a belief that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if i ever feel that level of connection all that matters is that that well gets built and that cow doesn't get killed and increasingly in my life both with you know the charisma stuff and morality i'm wondering if there isn't if if that isn't now blocking me from a higher order of morality i imagine so in both of those examples it yeah. sounds like there has to be an audience that you have to appear tall and confident to somebody rather than feel tall and confident and you're getting into the feeling, but mm-hmm. it's still for an audience. Like, yes, confidently sitting on your couch is not, was not a question that you had. You know what I mean? Um, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine with the altruistic donations, it's also like I'm doing the things uh, and donating to the causes that on paper, when people say, do you donate? You're like, yeah, I do. Every year I donate an X amount of my salary and they go, oh, you must be a good guy because you're appearing and whether you have the feeling or not, it's still for that audience at a coffee shop to like, who's the, who's your judge? Yeah. Well, you can argue, I see that and that does exist in the morality one, but I think I would still give to the charity if you sealed my mouth shut because my judge is what I imagine to be this like, though I'm not religious in the traditional sense, like God, yeah. you know, like this person who knows everything I've done that weighs the weight of my soul, if I am yeah. a good or a bad person. And if I could never tell a soul, I, I would still do it because I do feel or have in the past felt weighed in that manner. Um, so I know what you're saying about the audience piece. And I think that that exists, mm. but it is, it is not, it is not like a human audience that it is for. It is not for social standing that I it really is insignificant to me yeah it it is it is much more of a like what do I need to do to be good Mm. is is a fundamental thing and that is and that is you know what do I and so the fundamental charisma question that started it is what do I need to do to make you like me the fundamental question that I had here was what do I need to do to be good and a new question which can take me a step backwards and makes me behave in ways that go shit I don't know if this is helpful to other people is what makes me feel more connected and it is a slower route and I'm not saying that I'm going to withdraw my my you know standard amount of money that I give to charity water but I was like some of the things that make me feel more connected are incredibly selfish like it's a lot of money on myself for these therapy things that I get and these expensive MDMA sessions with expensive support afterwards money that could have been sold elsewhere it's you know, one day, hopefully what I would like to do is like go to Africa and see some of the wells instead of taking, and I might fly first class, you know, instead of taking that money. Greta Thornburg would not be happy with I know. And building 
another well, which I recognize like that is not utilitarian. Now, the criticism that that was in this philosophy tube video that made me realize it, that made, you know, and I, that I connected with this strand of thought that I'd already been having was that effective altruism slants in the direction of the measurable, right? Because like it, it can only count what can be measured. So like mm. it wants to reduce everything. How many lives did you save? How many of this did you That's do? That's interesting. And it, and it can only, it, so, it, so it slants towards things that are measurable. It has to. Yeah. It's a definition of the word. Yes, you have to be able to measure it. And it's like, well, what is the, this is the question. Assuming that you can't measure it, but what is the broader impact of me becoming a more connected person over the course of my life and over the long term? Because effective altruism struggles to get to like, you know, the long-term impact of of you uh, patting someone on the back or saying hello or, or saying I love you more often in your life and like, those things are much more difficult to track through, measure outcomes of, which isn't to say that they don't have profound outcomes. Like, if I, that, that's the question that I have, is am I limiting my vision to a very narrow set of like, we build a well and 10,000 people get access to water in a, in a three-year time span versus if I focused more or, which I do to be clear, not more, if I, but if I considered it a moral act and a lovable act and a admirable act and encouraged myself and other people to do it more, to lean into with their funds and their energy, things that make them feel connected to other people, to animals, to the world, etc., rather than how do we get this well what kind of world might we have, even from an outcome perspective, in fifty years? Yeah, and my I actually think now this is there's a bit of faith in this, and I but I can unpack it over the longer term. That connected world is better because what you get when you don't do that is what we talked about first, which is you get people abusing the metrics. You get everybody wants to you know like do the check the box to be good, do the thing, do the environmental thing, and you get. When people aren't connected, they just want the box and you get corrupt measurements. Um, and that is not a, at first I was like, oh, well, that's just this, you know, that, that can happen, but you just get a different person. It's like, no, that's built into a system where people are fundamentally disconnected and only doing things to be good and not because they feel connected to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I'm thinking of it from another angle, which is like, uh, I, I imagine myself hiding behind the reasons of like not being altruistic or not donating because I need to help myself first selfishly. Mm -hmm. And then if you take that to like an extreme, like Bill Gates, like if Bill Gates never built the company, Microsoft, he wouldn't be so incredibly effective at affecting a large amount of people with his altruism and donations today, with his ability to stop whatever cured diseases he stopped down to 13 people in Africa. What did, what was he able to do? Ebola, I think. Ebola or something. He I like eradicated an entire virus, uh, nearly. Um, and, uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but in the sense of like, if he was donating all of his time and money earlier, not all of his time, but a portion of it and not building his company, and not being, quote unquote, selfish, like I was saying, he may not have reached this level of effectiveness to be altruistic in the way that um, is perfect for the definition. Like, um, well, he actually is the poster child for effective altruism. So let me like, and he might not have been if he was that prior, is what I'm saying. Like with perfect foresight, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm. Sort well, of this is to. so effective altruism encourages Bill Gates. They say earn to give, yes. and that's like. Now here's the question, though, and you you pointed to measurable things. He eradicated a disease. He did this. Now I don't know anything about Bill Gates in his Neither, private life. What might have happened had Bill Gates focused instead on connection? Yes. What kind of my, world would we live in if there was no Microsoft Windows? If Ebola still existed? But William Gates had connected to his wife and his kids. I don't know if that would be a better world or a worse world, but it seems like that, be, and, and in fact, you go, oh no, it would be worse because we'd still have a bowl and all these people would have died. It's like, yeah, but you're measuring too soon is the response. Like, imagine if instead, then his kids, then his neighborhood, then his this, got more interested in connection. You couldn't measure it. You would go, 
we're behind because Bill Gates that with the hole in his heart and the divorce cured Ebola. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but run that out multiplied by everybody and the people that they impact, and you you might wind up in an actually more loving, desirable world to live in versus, which is not, it's it, again, it's an improvement over not giving, to be yes. clear. Like, you know, if everybody becomes, and I'm, I don't know the guy, but I'm saying let's, for the sake of this conversation, that Bill Gates is a brainiac, effective altruism poster child who is trying to math out the biggest way to do good in the world. Uh, if everybody does that, we have these metrics which can, which can be corrupted. We we don't focus on the internal experience. We focus much more on the on the uh, external material, which of course is important and needs to happen at a particular time when you don't have access to water. But um, feels like if not the whole world, like I'm glad that there are still societies that are uh, charities that ask the question of what's the best way, best bang for our buck, and that I can, uh, without a thought, give to them and and trust them not to be corrupt. I'm glad that exists. But it feels feels like me or I and perhaps uh, some swath of society and culture is lucky enough to be invited to another way of being, which is like a higher level of contribution is to figure out how to be more connected such that it is not a moral imposition for me not to eat cows. It just is the same ease and love with which I don't eat my dog. Mm. Um. Because, I mean, think of it. Like, you can donate, 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 donate. But imagine if I could unlock in myself and teach other people to, like, not want to do the thing that hurt <laughs> other people. Oh, no, he's going vegan. <laughs> yeah. He's going to start no, yelling no, no, at people. I, I'm saying that as an example. But imagine if it was just, like, and again, some people need to. I'm not trying to say all of society all at once. I think the vast majority of the world is going to continue to eat animals. you know. But I'm saying for certain people that have access to the resources that I have, to be able to start to unlock a higher degree of connectedness where you are not bound by what you can't do or what you need to do in order to be a good person, but it where it flows naturally from you as you remove the junk inside of your psyche. is beautiful. I mean, you're reminding me of that poster that was in my house class, which is like, if you have sex with one person, here's how <laughs> that multiplies down. And I'm just like imagining the connected, the connected chart. Seven people and we've reached the entire... Uh, U.S. population. You know what chart I'm talking about? You got everybody. Yeah. I was like, I'm definitely going to get you seen the chart it twice. Like, it's like a pyramid. It's like this <laughs> yeah. person, this person, and that person. And next thing you know, you've affected everyone with a STD in your school. <laughs> but with connectedness. Yeah. Yes. But with connectedness instead of STDs. Yes. Um, yes. That is, uh, I saw a video of somebody talking about how you're energetically connected to ever that's that's a maybe a conversation for another day because i'd like to think more about it but that's like a question that i have for the jordan petersons of the world to there are two strands really there are scramble people, their brain ask if they're well no there's emotionally there's, connected to everything sorry there's there's this strand of person who is who is uh sex is either taboo slash sacred you know and i think they can sometimes confuse those two where it is like both wrong and divine <laughs> <laughs> and um and you need to be careful because it is an exchange of energies. And then there's people that are like, sex is fun. Like I just, you know, I had a massage and I'm not in love with that person. And they touched me intimately and I'm not going to carry their energy for the rest of my life in a way that is detrimental to either me or them. And it was a wonderful casual exchange, mm -hmm. you know. Um, why couldn't I do that with sex or something like that? If we were, if we used protection and those sorts of things. And uh, so that's, that's a conversation that I... Uh, would like to get into with people who have strong opinions. Um, yeah, yeah. But I don't. I don't have. I have more of the question than I have the strong opinion about yeah. that. But the morality piece, yeah, that's what I'm coming to, and it of course is more selfish. It is well, my gosh, in a way, it's less selfish because there is a deep selfishness in asking, "What do I have to do to be good?" If it, like if that's my primary question, "What do I have to do to be good?" Yeah, it can look and behave and have the outcome of other people getting things that they want and need but it's in from this level of intention it is selfish mm. versus what how can i feel more connected from the level of intention the other is incorporated you know what i mean like and uh interesting and it is robust and long term and if and if you i, I think you kind of have to have faith to really lean into this that 
that you are good, that people are good, and that when you remove the junk, people are people are good. If you don't believe that or that doesn't match, um, then you should definitely like put guardrails and rules and moral injunctions and a God that judges you from above, you know. And I don't think it's safe to say that people are or aren't good, but I do see the arc of human history more and more people as we get out of like base scarcity where it is you got to fight for every meal are given the opportunity to um, let go of the fear of not surviving another day and actually become more connected. And I feel lucky to, to be there. Um, and it seems like hopefully like that's like the arc of where more and more of humanity can come. So it will be the job of some people to like help assist those people get out of the material, um, squalor and, uh, scarcity that they live in to where they have a material level of abundance. And then it's like, okay, well now we got to figure out how to get a, uh, emotional, mental, spiritual level of abundance as well. And then, you know, we can put the whole morality thing to rest. <laughs> a lot of questions, man. Yeah. But it was a good video, and I appreciated that video. Um, So that was morality, yeah. And just to be clear, I'm still going to donate to Charity Water and all that kind of stuff, but it is the the questions that I come up with is like, I think I will, you know, spending my money to go to see a well um, and connect with it at one day and, and like, really prioritize that um, one selfishly and own that there is a selfish desire to be connected to it, but also that I think that there is... um, I think I can give more. From, I do too. From that level, from that from place. From being connected to it. I As that. opposed to if I like, if I am taxed every, and I can go, well, how much can I afford to give from a tax? Like maybe I can give you my whole arm taxed, but yeah, like. You might, get, you might give your entire salary. Yeah, maybe salary. I cut myself in half taxed, but like that still feels like less than it would be if I put my, wanted to, you know, like, and uh, felt sustained through it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like, this is my punishment for having such wonderful luck, which is kind of a degree, not my punishment. This is my obligation. Um, that is sort of how I feel. Uh, so yeah, we talked about ESGs and the optimization around those metrics. Uh, <laughs> John Stewart uh, talked about, you know, now uh, the Department of Energy says that they have low confidence, but it might have been a lab leak, uh, the COVID outbreak. Mm. says. And so John Stewart, I don't know if you... I haven't seen John Stewart's take on it, no. It was, well... You saw him on Colbert many months ago when he came nope. out. You didn't see this? Oh, maybe I did. He was joking. He, he was dangling. Like, yeah, you yeah, didn't yeah. see this? Where he I comes do, out and says it's like if there was an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You know, <laughs> yeah, where, yeah, did it, yeah. where did it come from? Um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. yeah. Down the he crushed it. <laughs> um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology studying novel coronaviruses. Yeah, and so he came and he said uh, on his podcast that he received swift, tremendous, furious backlash. Um and, you know, for him, it was like, if you think it's a lab leak, you are Republican and you are racist and you are this. And if you think that it came from a wet market, you are a Democrat and you are not racist and you are et cetera. And uh, his his phrase, which I am a bit paraphrasing, is that uh, n- never before have we had more speech and fewer viewpoints, fewer acceptable viewpoints that, you know, the... Um, grouping of this you know okay so if you you can i'll give you like somebody voted for biden how do they feel about guns do they think that it came from a uh wet market or a lab you know what what do they think about the like you can just predict a whole tremendous amount of things and i don't know that he's necessarily right that this is a unique moment in history for that um though i do understand that it feels that way uh but i just thought that it was yeah, I don't know if it's unique. I imagine I wasn't alive, but like mm-hmm. war for Vietnam, I bet you if you agreed with going to war in Vietnam. If it, you didn't, you probably smoked weed yeah, and had a free sex. You know I, mean? <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but the- I've the, seen the movies. <laughs> the, uh, the part that grabbed me about that, which is what I feel is, I've said this before, but like trying to inform yourself by listening to the news and reading is seems like an exercise in futility that is both um, futile and deeply ineffective. So like, you know, studying, is it this? Isn't it this? Like, I, certainly we need some people to do that. Um, but there is so much mud in the water that I don't feel like it's a good use of my time. And when I do talk about it on things like this, I try to... Um, 
I try not to talk about disputable facts on the ground and instead talk about the meta story of like, why focus on this? Why, like, what is this, what does this say that we can agree? Um, and that brings me to the Nord Stream pipeline. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> what's, what's that? What is that? I thought that this was interesting. Um, this is from Cy Hirsch who wrote a story, um, uh, alleging and saying that he has a source that says that the U.S., uh, I forget with perhaps Norway, um, is responsible for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which took gas from Russia to Germany and the severing of which was um, sort of pointed to it like Russia sabotaging themselves, but didn't really make any strategic, why, why would they do that? Um, and since then, Germany has aligned much more with NATO and the U.S. in terms of their hawkishness on this war and willingness to provide um, supplies to the Ukrainians. And so this is from Cy Hirsch, who wrote that story. Um, and this was this this may have been updated. This this came out um, a week or so ago. So if if the fact on the ground changed, uh, but at the time he wrote this, the New York Times published everything I wrote, most if not all, on the front page when I was an investigative reporter on the paper from 1972 to 1979. The Washington Post has followed my career as the loyal opposition and ran a long magazine profile of me more than two decades ago. Neither paper has run a word at this point about the pipeline story, not even to quote the White House's denial of my reporting. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got, I saw somebody, we got UFOs, we got all this other stuff coming out. Jenny spy balloons. We got, we got spy balloons coming out, and it is, uh, again, what I, what I, I'm not saying that this is important. I'm not saying that this isn't important. I'm not saying that Cy Hirsch is right or that he is wrong or that I've done any investigating. This is mud for me that makes me go, why would I pretend to have a, a meaningful opinion on the Ukraine war? Or not, yeah, why the fuck would I do that? <laughs> Given that I don't understand the history leading up to it and my YouTube video or book that I read isn't gonna, is going to get me one person's perspective of that. Um, and then things like this. How many Ukrainians have you talked to? Actually, Actually, a lot. A yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. You. You've got an entire... Uh... And where, where I stand safely is like, oh man, this fucking sucks. That That is, I'm clear on. I, for, I, the, I, for the civilians. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. I'm so clear on that. Um, but the, uh, who's right, who's wrong, who Putin is, who Putin isn't, um, I, this is... I believe a more extreme version, but it is, I, I imagine what it would be like for a North Korean developing a worldview to go, you know, what kind of person Joe Biden is? Well, you know, the, the hardliners say that he's the devil, but I think he's just the most evil person on the planet. You know, it's just like, I live in a, uh, I am bookended by people that have an agenda for me. Like all of the media that I get, uh, even though it is, might come through the the mouth of some person on Instagram that I used to know is it's being generated and it is being um, selected for, if not by an individual then by a group interest that aligns with a, a group perspective that is not necessarily match what I would do if I flew to a different part of the world. And I experienced that when I went abroad and got a totally different view of America, which didn't match uh, really anything that I'd learned before that. So do you think you can trust anything that's not a firsthand experience? Obviously you do, but I'm wondering where in between um, the news and a firsthand experience do you... Uh, I think I have probably, when I think of it, a matrix of like, how important is it that I have a strong opinion on this subject is one of the first questions. And so... Does it concern me? I trust the news when it says it's going to rain because I make decisions based on that. They also have a decent track record. <laughs> they're, you know, they're really good at um, report. Snow days they didn't get right back in the day. That pissed they're me off. They're way better now. They got way more <sighs> uh, so weather angry. stations. <laughs> so this, this, how important is it? And I think I disagree with a lot of people on the internet about the answer to that question. I think it is very unimportant that I have a side for almost anything um, okay. in the world. Uh, and then given that I go, well, how much effort do I want to put into doing it? And if the answer is, I think it's very unimportant that I have an opinion. Um, I don't put a tremendous amount of effort trying to sift through the mud in order to get something. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the short of it. When I'm trying to make a decision of what video title to do, 
I try to do a lot of, you know, that is that I decide is important. And I look at and I research and I go to other titles and I look at real time views and I try to gather data that I can that might be manipulated in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But like I I um start with is this important that I do it? And I have a yeah, like I said, a much lower sense that it is many things are important for me to have an opinion on. I've got questions about the old good and golden age of when news just reported the news. I don't believe it. <laughs> no, well, yellow and journalism. only because my father says it, you know, <laughs> nonstop that there was a time when the New York Times just always told the truth. And I'm just like, the truth is as the U.S. wanted it to be told, you know what I mean? Like a, always a biased mm-hmm. news station. They're humans writing this. The AI bots don't have a bias. So I'm ready for <laughs> ChatGBT to give me the real info. Yes. Um, it is, uh, I agree with you. I don't, when people talk about the heyday of... Um, Golden age of media. I don't. There's just I'm, three I'm, stations and everything yeah. was the truth. I'm very skeptical, which reminds me, I saw, um, uh, what is his name? Not Brett, what's his brother's name? Eric Wein- Weinstein. And, on Joe Rogan? And Yeah, on Joe Rogan. And they were talking about stick shifts. You listen to it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they were talking about how like it, how much more engaging and enjoyable it is to drive a stick shift. And I've never driven a stick shift and really never, where I grew up, that just like wasn't a thing. Um, I've driven. I liked it. But yeah, go ahead. I would say people in our area, how many have driven a stick shift? I would say like more than 15%. This area. More than this area. 15, 20%. Yeah. In our generation, like n- most did not. Um, and it's interesting to hear generations because- what I noted was it seems like technology always is advancing. And what technology is doing is it is taking, uh, it is making things easier and more convenient. So there was a time when you just like, first you had to like get your horse ready and then you got a car. And I'm sure that everybody's like, dude, it's not the same. There's a living, breathing being under you. Like driving a car is not the same. Right. And then they were cranking their, their, they had their crankshaft and then somebody wasn't cranking their car. And they were just like, you're not going to crank your, that's the whole point, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then we had a stick shift and they're like, dude, you're going to drive without a stick shift. You're, yeah, yeah. you're driving out, you're like, you're missing the point. Yeah. And then I'm going to grow up and I'd be like, you kids are taking the hypervolt or the, what, that's, the, that's my gun, the hyperloop. Like, you're not going to drive your car and you're going to fall asleep. <laughs> you're not going to fall asleep. You're going to fall asleep. The whole point is to like play the song and like look around as you're road. doing it. And it is interesting because um, I don't think that anyone is wrong there, but it seems like what technology does at some level is it makes things easier and more convenient to free up your time for something else. We don't know what. At the cost of uh, what you lose is engagement with that thing. You are less connected to, I mean, horse, to crank car, to stick shift, to automatic. We're definitely skipping some steps. To Uber. (laughs) I'm skipping it, but it's like my, like if you look at a human's engagement with their mode of transportation. You had to feed your horse. Yeah, it's it's just down, 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 down. Yes. So there's, I have much lower engagement when I am getting places and I do other things with that time. Some of which are maybe not better uses of time than brushing a horse's foot. I don't know. Like maybe it'd be better off with a horse's foot. Um, And it seems like inexorably technology is going to march forward the next well, we should say with the you you getting there on joe rogan's podcast with eric weinstein they were reminiscing about the days of being connected to a car right like how the sound of the engine and shifting and driving yeah. going around a turn and how like kids these days don't have that right that was their it was point. sort of that, that you, oh yeah that's that's it's so much better is so much better was their take and i i was I don't think that, and I don't, I don't feel that lack in my life. And I, you know, we all go to the supermarket instead of hunting our food. And like, what do we miss when we do that? Uh, but it, it, I was like, what is the arc of this? Are they right? Should I get a stick shift was yeah. my question. Gotcha. And what I was like, oh man, the generation after me is gonna, I used to have to choose my own YouTube videos. I used to have to sit there and think, <laughs> what topic is most interesting to me? And now you just get it spoon fed through your TikTok into your brain. <laughs> You're not even picking it. And like, yeah, it's so much better though. You, get, you had to pick your video. You had to sit there and scroll through Netflix and decide which movie and maybe get one that wasn't right for you. Like, it seems like this pattern is going to continue and continue and continue. And the, the risk is, what do you do with the time freed up by technological innovation? Do you find something to engage with? Or do you never find something to engage with and stay uh, lost in 
a docile human just following America's orders. Yes. And, well, or, like, I believe that it maybe it can maybe be as rewarding to, like, drive a stick shift and take care of your car as it can be to take care of your horse. But I, I do don't, believe that. I think there's people that do that. I don't think it's as rewarding to clock in and clock out of a, to just like zone out and disconnect from life as you drive to work, no matter whether it's on your horse or your car or your hyperloop, to just disconnect and lose engagement feels like the real risk. And technology is neither good nor bad in this. It just gives you more flexibility to not engage if you choose not to. Like you... Back in the day, it seems like you had to be really freaking engaged with your life. You had to take the tracks and find the thing, and and that's just not required. You can zone out for hours and hours, and in fact, people, uh, companies make that easy to do nowadays. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I was also wondering, like, man, as technology goes forward and AI enters and what is going to be left for people, it seems like chosen engagement chosen, engagement, chosen creativity so. and passive entertainment <laughs> looking way far down the line just like receiving shows and discussing them, which isn't i don't think it's that bleak as long as there is chosen engagement as well um in there but yeah a life of just passive consumption uh seems I like that for part of my life. <laughs> but maybe kids will be like, no, man, full life. I'm just like sitting back and letting the the opiate course through your veins as you sit in your pod and you watch your TikToks. It's like the best. <laughs> and I'll be like, you're right. <laughs> well, back in my day, <laughs> we didn't do that. We'll see 20 years from now. Um, but there, there is this pattern of like the old looking at the young and like they're, they're missing the zest of life. And it's like, how many times has that been thought by somebody who was 50, 60 years old, and and we, yet we march on. Like, I did a YouTube video, and uh, I found this one clip that was from since 1902, one generation saying the other generation doesn't work as hard as the generation <laughs> before since 1902. They've been publishing it in the paper, so I have like a 10-second clip where it's like, this generation doesn't work as hard as I, literally, through every really? decade. Yeah, every decade in the paper, this generation didn't work as hard as I did. I definitely feel that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> No, I actually don't. I mean, uh, I do feel that. That is the truth. Uh, they live in a different world. Yes. The keeps answer. getting easier. Technology keeps is not, getting easier. Technology is nice. Uh, yes. Yes. So uh, I watched a clip from uh, Chris Williamson popped up. It was a short. His shorts of, uh, I guess I get him because I follow him. And uh, he was doing, he was talking about how uh, the difference between men and women and men want to be respected versus women wanting to be loved. And I've heard that before and I agree to... Um, I see that in the world. You know, I see that I see men moving towards things that make them respected. And I see women, again, on average, moving towards um, things that make them feel cared for and loved. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that this is like a biological difference. And that was one of the things that I was wanted to bring up. Um, it seems like, and I have felt this in my own life, again, so this is a personal thing that yeah. Uh, the arc of my life is I was absolutely, oh yeah, respect, fuck love. Like I'm gonna get respect. And I, as I feel that I am, um, safer. Garnered respect. I got the respect. I feel more abundant in a lot of things. I actually feel like I could lose the respect, but would want to keep and pursue love more. Uh, we'll see. I think uh, he might be right here if you had to choose one or the other as a, as a guy. They as might a me? As a guy. As a me, I'll take the love these days. You've had the respect. You yes. run the simulation, I think the guys take the respect. I agree. And what I'm wondering is if in more, like imagine technology marching forward. Okay, let, first, let's go back a thousand years. I think it might have been even more important for men to have respect. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like, so respect was, so in positions Yo, of- bro, fuck love a thousand years ago. Fuck love, dude. I don't know. I but want it, a castle <laughs> in my respect. Or let's go back to our grandparents' age, okay. which is more knowable because yeah. I see them. Yeah, that seems accurate to my assessment of some of the people of that generation. It's like respect far more than love for those men. Yeah. And that has shifted towards a balance of like, well, 
our parents' generation is one way and I'm another way. And I see the amount of love to respect ratio for men going up. Like they seem to want more love. And what seems to be happening is, the again, fortunate enough that the men in my lineage and around me are having more abundance. They are not going to World War II. They are, <laughs> yeah, things are getting better. And as abundance goes up, I see men less demanding, wanting, and benefiting from respect and more interested in love. And I am the cutting edge of that in my family. It's interesting too, because if you think about the 60s and like the drug-fueled dissolving of the ego via psychedelics for that time period, they didn't care about respect mm -hmm. yeah, and they yeah. were hardcore in love. They wanted yes. music and free society and and I think that's because of what I just mentioned. Um, so to your point, wish we had a girl here to get her <laughs> point of view, which is like, what would you rather have? Um well, yeah, and we can define our terms a little bit, like respect the way I understand that men want us to be like admired and they're okay if there's a lacking of intimacy or connection or closeness, but they are admired, desired, deferred to, you know, like those things, you know, that's respect and love would be more connection, closeness, kindness, sweetness. Um, and yeah, I've, I don't think it's, as I have had abundance and not just having got the respect, like it, truly, because I did get the respect and it, it, that had an impact. It was also the ability to like go to therapy and do drugs. And I say drugs, I mean psychedelics. Medicine. medicine. Well, I don't like the word medicine either. Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> like Psychedelics is the word that I like. Um, yeah, I have seen that uh, shift in me. And I, I go, man, I wonder, and I wonder in Nordic countries would be different than uh, you know, going to Latin America or something like that, where I, I think my experience briefly in Nordic countries, but for about three years in Latin America is like respect is higher. Like respect is important there. Yeah, I didn't sense that in the Nordic countries as much. And I wonder as you get towards like a higher floor, less scarcity, if you move men out of this need, desire for respect, which can be totally appropriate to the context that they're in, more towards love. And if that's not just more commentary on the age that we're in rather than a truth about men and women. Oh. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, it feels like when we say men are, not in everything, but in this particular one, it's like men are this way, women are this way. I go, I flash forward 100, 200 years, I don't know. And if things keep getting better, I don't know that that will hold. Um, I think that's and, a pretty good uh, prediction. And therefore, I don't think you should orient yourself as if it is true for you. If you are a man to go, yes, this is more important. And I, I back myself with this. It's okay if it's true in your context, in your, uh, there's nothing, I'm not saying that's bad. Um, but I am saying that I have felt and seen through my travels and my life that with increased abundance comes a reprioritization of what is most important. Um, so yeah. It's only a short, though. He couldn't have uh, said too much more than that. Couldn't have elaborated any further. <laughs> no, I mean, well, dude, I'll talk to him when he's, uh, I'm trying to get him to come visit. And, yeah, uh, get him on the Get the him pod. on a cast and be like, when you said that on your short, this is the, the I want love, Chris. The, um, the caliber of comments that you get as you decrease the length of a video and go to short form just goes down, 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 down. It's incredible. In terms of thoughtfulness? Well, one, I think the, um, yeah, in terms of thoughtfulness, um, some of them are very funny, to be fair. Yeah. Like, I, I've seen some just hilarious one-liners in there. But uh, the thoughtfulness, the reactivity seems to spike. The, um, and I think it's just, there's not much to comment on. This thing is taken in isolation. Uh, you, there seems to be in the comments not an understanding that there was a video before and after this and more context may have been added. But of course, that is not a reflection, I think, of your average viewer, but of the selection of people who are likely to comment on a video like that. Mm. Um, I think I mentioned this last week, but uh, this is so obvious to a lot of people. I'll say, I did a breath work where uh, literally YouTube comments came up in my mind. I read one that uh, I didn't like that upset me. And I've said this before, but I just, I saw it in this context in my own life that 
it was so clear that the comment, even though it had my name and it referred to something I said wasn't for me, it was, you know, they were upset with my take on something. And the way that that came about, it was angry. This is so fucking dumb. Uh, and with a snark, snide comment. And I'm sure that that was not what I brought to the podcast. I'm 100% certain that that was not what I brought, but that was what I received. And I was like, oh, this isn't for me. Like, yes, they wrote my name on the comment, and yes, they posted it under my video, and yes, they said that it was about the thing, but the energy of the anger, the pissed offness, the snarkiness, that's their own shit. And as I look through, um, I could see that much more clearly. Now, I, that's, that's not a breakthrough for a lot of people, but it, it, it landed in me really, really hard. Um, and so that was cool to, uh, to not, to not need to not look at it or dismiss it or just to go, wow, this isn't to me. I don't know what to say. Like, yes, it has my name on it, but this just isn't to me. <laughs> I don't know who this is for. I wish I could return to sender and like <laughs> you could take it to them. And if you want to comment on what I said, I would love to know the content of your thoughts on the thing that I spoke about or even your disagreement, even your passionate, vehement disagreement. I'd like to hear none of it. I, I, <laughs> I actually disagree. I want, I do want to be challenged. I think that's great. I think when people tell me you have a crutch word or you spoke over Henry too much, they're wrong. <laughs> Can I just say one thing? <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I, and I've tried to be conscious of that in this. And I, I, that was for me. Like when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that's, that's for me. I, oh that, yeah. What, when I reject, I'm, what I'm rejecting is the part that's not for me, which is like, you're doing uh, this for the audience to feel special. I don't know, whatever you bring into the comment. I, I'm, I'm here for the thoughtful, you're an idiot's comments, but I'm, but you just said it was for someone else that he was having a bad day. I don't even know. Got it. So you're comments. saying when you said you didn't want any of that, you were referring to all the stuff that's not for you. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Return to sender, that stuff. But I do want criticism. I yeah, do yeah. want critique. Maybe not criticism, critique. Like, do this differently. I would do this better. You were not clear here. You, yeah, I, I, that's great. Um, and uh, it's a tough thing to, I'm getting better at it, to just like, extract what is for me because there was in there truth the thing that was for me that i took from that particular comment was like you you did not explain yourself in a way that was clear to a lot of people because there was a uh, recurring thread of something that i said that people didn't like uh, and what i take from that when i see that several times is like I, cl I am not, if it, if this is inciting upsetness in this many people i can do a better job of being clear because i know i'm not bringing vitriol anger mm. or um flippancy to this topic so okay. i can definitely do a better job of communicating and i want to know that yeah great so any other topics uh yeah i have a bunch written down maybe start th with this one the lady um in florida she's has a lawyer who's defending her for she was arrested six weeks pregnant. It's been eight months and she's about to have a baby. <laughs> yeah. And so now there's a lawyer and uh, a group that's fighting for fetal rights or something like that. Because the baby is in her belly because in jail. The and did not commit the crime. Yeah. And so they're fighting for uh, fetal rights in Florida. And this could be an alleyway into some of the abortion um, rights in Florida. Like... And here's like a very interesting mm -hmm. circumstantial case. This lady uh, committed a crime six months pregnant or hasn't been, has been charged yeah. and is in, in jail. Eight months later, she's about to have the baby. What do we do with the baby? Did the baby commit the crime? Mm -hmm. Did it not commit the crime? Did it, um, does it have inalienable rights? Should she yeah. be treated? Should this, should she be in a better cell? Cause this baby in her belly I kind of uh, think so. <laughs> this this baby in her belly didn't commit a crime or did it commit a crime? Tell me what it is. Does she get... I think it's actually less complicated. I think that the political football of this case is to um, attack or force clarification on the rights of an unborn child. Yeah. Um, but the thing it is certain like i think we would you know most people would agree this child did not commit this crime in a meaningful way even though it was there it might have aided and abetted <laughs> what if it was what if she was 6 months pregnant 
let's say she was the day before birth or two weeks before birth, like whatever, wherever it is, I, I think a couple things. Uh, one, what happens in utero is very important to the development of a child. Yeah. That I think is broadly Jail agreed isn't upon. good for a child. Stress, Stress on the mother isn't ideal. Um, and two, the baby with current technology is stuck inside of this mother. So, whereas you might with someone who wasn't carrying a baby go, I'm okay with imposing stress on your life. I'm okay that you're going to sit in a holding cell. I'm okay that you're going to um, cry and freak out and nobody's going to come to support you. When it is a mother with a baby, and yeah. if that is deeply impactful on the baby, which I believe that it is. Now, to be fair, also having a mom that committed murder is deeply impactful on the baby, but that that horse has left the barn. Cat's out of that bag. Can't get that one back in. I do think that it is consistent to say that we need, well, we are recognizing that we are putting these children in stressful situations that they need not be in, that, you know, if the government is going to take this woman and put her in jail, I think it is uh, obliged to remediate in some way some of the stress, not for her sake, but for the child who did not commit the crime, but who is bathing in cortisol and, you know, all of the crap that, um, is going on from a developmental space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, you know, it, it's, it, there's not a perfect solution, but I actually do think that you should probably have pregnant women treated as if there is a second person who is receiving the, uh, justice slash punishment that, because in a meaningful way that is happening. Yeah. Um, and I, what I mean is the meaningful way is like the development of the baby's brain is deeply impacted by the what's going on in the mother's life at that point in time. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I landed on that. Now, should she get out of jail? I don't necessarily think that should be the case because with all of the abortion rights, you're weighing the uh, the rights of the individual against the the state's prerogative and keeping you know someone who just killed someone and not running around free is important even yep. and there's a drawback to that which is this child who is innocent is suffering um and the state is involved you know the state is, is jailing the mother and contributing to that yeah um so yeah that's that's my initial reaction see how it plays out yeah i would listen to the first three episodes of the witch trials of jk rowling wow wow um, it's uh, a podcast by a woman who was previously in the Westboro Baptist Church, reached out to J.K. Rowling. She talks about it. Things that I um, found interesting. One, I was deeply moved by the creative story of her making Harry Potter and how people have noted how the books kind of evolved with the generation. Like the first one was like light and fun and by the end it was dark. And that was uh, a product of her life experience where she was abused by her husband at the time. And the, oh, wow. I did not know her, that. I think her, I don't know if her mom or dad died. And that, she's like, I brought it into the story. Like it, that that came through me. And I love that. I'm, that it was, uh, yeah, that her life funneled through into that. I thought was just, I, I, that's perhaps one of the things that I love about art and books and all that stuff that I want to do as well. And so I was moved just listening to her talking about the origin of Harry Potter and what, when her parent died, she's like, you know, I had made him an orphan just because. And she's like, I didn't understand what that meant until, until I lost a parent. Oh, she, her subconscious was just writing a story. (laughs) She just, you know, Luke Skywalker, he's an orphan. He's, you know, he's, and she's, uh, I don't, of course she doesn't know what it's like to lose a child that you never, uh, parents that you never knew, but like she gained a depth, I think, that probably came through in the character um, and was probably able to tell truths that she wouldn't have been able to tell as she imagined what it was like to to do that. So yeah. I thought that that was really... Do you have anything else on that? Because I have questions. Sure, go for it. I, mean, I have more J.K. Rowling, but... Yeah, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the show's name is The Witch Trials of J.K. Yeah, yeah, Rowling. Does she deal with That's- some of the... PR that's going around right now? So this story, and again, I, I'm cognizant of the framing of it, is um, they take you through the first backlash against Harry Potter was an evangelical backlash of uh, 
Harry Potter's magical and Satan works through magic and are these are the dark arts are clearly in there and she's teaching our kids and she's corrupting our children and she dealt with the first wave in the 90s and 2000s of backlash and now there is another wave of satanic back- power within the Harry Potter books yes got it and there is another wave of backlash which is the JK Rowling is a transphobe and um wants a trans genocide and that is the second wave that it really hasn't by episode three gotten to but you can see that they're setting up the comparison of those things and uh i'm trying you know i'm cognizant that that is the framing of the podcast i do think that it is a whether or not you agree with either of them what i again this is where i I like to try to view these things without because I don't know what J.K. Rowling said, and I'm uninterested in doing a forensic dive into it. who is J.K. Rowling. Is she, isn't she, what people say. It's, it is not important that I have an opinion on who she is. What I did learn from it is that everybody who behaves in a way that is like that feels under threat. They may or may not be. Feeling under threat is not correlated to being under threat. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, and it's, of course, tough, but like the Christians, there was a story, you know, then Columbine happened and there was the story that one of the shooters went to a girl and asked her if she was a Christian and she said yes and then he shot her. And then the mom wrote a book and a memoir and that was the tale that was told over and over and it didn't happen. They did an investigative thing. He asked, um, he, she wasn't in the spot where the girl said that she was supposed to be. He did ask someone if she believed in God. She said yes and he didn't shoot that person again. Not because he had any reaction, but like she was saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. He said, do you believe in God? She said, yes, and or something like that. And he didn't, he didn't shoot her again. And so like this, uh, that though was seized upon by a subsection. And again, I don't know the size of it, um, but what I do believe in tracks is that uh, this people feel under attack often. Um, they feel under attack oftentimes when they are not under attack and so what you have is you know these christians feel under attack and then they start doing things with jk rowling and she feels under attack they both feel that each that the other one started at first is the other thing this is they each feel that the other one did the thing and started the war um they each see the other side's grievances as illegitimate again may or may not be but Oh, the, you got some threats, whatever. What did anyone ever do? You know, oh, you got a, th- a bomb threat. That Everyone on the internet gets a bomb threat. And for her, it's, you know, you think Christians are under attack because I did, but they, they think that this is a spiritual war that's coming. Yeah. And then a uh, similar or mirrored situation. Again, I'm not, you can weigh in on whether you think these are totally different on a content perspective, but from a uh, the broader context of trans people feeling under attack, J.K. Rowling, who was uh, abused by her husband, and feels very, very fearful of biological men being led into women's spaces, uh, feels under attack. And without weighing in on who is right or who is wrong, this dynamic of people feeling threatened by one another and then the threats becoming real uh, is an interesting one to unfold or to look at. And the primary, and it's valid, like, who attacked first is important and everybody says the other person attacked first (laughs) this is israel palestine this is they and so at a high level yeah you can go into the history books to to try to figure out what the first thing was i could go in and find out what the first tweet jk rowling said versus the first this and form a particular opinion on who is right and who is wrong but the overarching pattern doesn't seem to be solvable by adjudicating that it's this, like, I wonder if there is a way for people not to feel so threatened by one another all the time, at least in those cases where the threat is not real. Like, to me, it feels, and other people are going to freak out on this because this is not their experience, that J.K. Rowling is not pushing for, advocating, or any way creating a trans genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, People think that I'm wrong about that, which is why they have to be so animated in their behavior. Because if that is the case, then of course they have to do it. Um, but yeah, at base, we can't agree on what's happening in reality. We can't agree on what's likely to happen. And so we we feel justified in wildly different behaviors and reactions to things based on um, is there going to be a trans genocide or isn't there? And the um, war is occurring in everyone's heart and mind. 
is what and you're saying. Far more wars occur internal to yeah. your experience than actually will wind up materializing in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so like uh, everybody's threat detector seems to be on tuned very, very sensitively to be safe, which creates more problems than need be. Um, you want to just, you know, if you could, you'd want to catch the Hitlers and not the whatevers that, that fizzle out. So I don't, I don't propose to have a solution uh, or know who JK Rowling is, but uh, I just thought it was an interesting podcast to listen to. Is it a podcast? Is it a show? Is it a podcast. documentary? It's a podcast. And they're pre-recorded and she produced this? She uh, worked with a woman from the Westboro Baptist Church who was interested in belief and how people come to believe the things they believe. Ex-member uh, ex of the West? Yeah, yeah. Ex-member, oh, okay. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, she's not. <laughs> an interesting uh, pairing there. <laughs> yeah, so that was that. Um, anyways, uh, anything? I think that's it. I think we're good. Very good. We can do patrons. Yeah, let's do patrons. We got some uh, every week on Patreon. I do what I learned specifically from my businesses in that week. People have very much enjoyed that. We also take the most popular questions, answer them over on Patreon. So if you want to join Patreon, please do so. It supports the podcast, keeps us going. Um, it is the primary source of income for the podcast. And when you join, it means the world to us to continue this. So if you enjoy this at all, please consider joining our Patreon. Um, do you want to say what we're talking about this week? Or we got talking about this we're talking about that <laughs> i know uh, one of the things that i'm i've got some business stuff first that i'm gonna do so but that's a secret for patrons. and we're answering patron <laughs> questions yeah. and i release unreleased videos and interviews you've done uh with other oh yeah podcasts. we did we did have uh there was an unreleased podcast that went up that um, and a magic show and a magic show <laughs> <laughs> that's true there's other stuff yeah i post there other well. content there so yeah. it's a great way to interact and ask your own questions if you like this com- there's more which yeah. is yeah so Check it out if that's if this is your style. Anyways, I appreciate all of you. Talk to you later. Peace. Peace.